Thanks to Callan and our musicians for leading us just through that first part of the surface. It's been really fitting, um, just what we've been hearing and singing for this morning. Uh, to be honest with you, you might be pleased to hear, I don't really have that much to say this morning. Um, maybe not in content, but in, uh, in points. One thing I really want to say to us this morning, because it's really one thing that Paul has to say to us in this passage, and that is that Jesus is Lord. If you hear anything this morning, hear that. Jesus is Lord. And it's not just that Paul repeats himself over and over here like a broken record. Uh, if you don't know what a record is, ask someone a little bit older than you. Or on loop, um, maybe, if you don't. Um, no, he repeats himself over and over, but each time he declares Christ's lordship um, in regards to or with relation to some different element of creation, the universe and the church. There's a progression with what he says here, but each time um, the chorus of this Christ hymn, often called in Colossians, the chorus is the same. Jesus is Lord. This morning, it's all about him. It's all about Christ, the Son of God, his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. But it's all about Christ, supreme Lord and all-sufficient Saviour. <clears throat> if you got up this morning and stubbed your toe, it's okay. Jesus is Lord. If you lost your job, or you're struggling to pay the bills, or you're worried about what to cook for tonight's dinner, it's okay. Jesus is Lord. If nations go to war, or our Prime Minister faces a barrage of abuse and loses the support of his own party, it's okay. Because Jesus is Lord. If you had an argument with your husband or wife, or a disagreement with your fellow pastor or brother or sister in Christ, it's okay. Because Jesus is Lord. If you're concerned about COVID or battling with cancer or worried about climate change, it's okay because Jesus is Lord. If you've suffered some injustice, you've been the victim or even the perpetrator of some cruelty or something harmful and hurtful, it's okay. Jesus is Lord. Now, hear me right and don't hear me wrong this morning. I'm not saying that all those things are okay. Some of them are not, far from it. But I'm saying it's okay because Jesus is Lord. Whatever our circumstance, whatever our suffering, whatever our joys, whatever our experience, Jesus is Lord and that doesn't change. And as little orphan Annie sings, the sun will come up tomorrow. Because he's Lord of all creation. You see? And when that sun does come up tomorrow, unless he returns before then, as Jeremiah sings, when that sun comes up, there'll be a new mercy for you to walk in. New every morning, because he is faithful in his steadfast love as Lord. Because he's loving and merciful. Have you ever thought about that word? He is full of mercy as our merciful Lord and high priest who makes the sun shine and the rain fall on the just and the unjust he's lord 
And I'm not saying that that wonderful truth of Christ's lordship makes light of every other part of our life or disregards evil or injustice or abuse. On the contrary, it actually raises the stakes for a number of those issues because he's holy Lord. But it also puts some other things into their right and true perspective. The church, the bride of Christ, our Lord, will not fall apart because a pastor falls from grace or there's a faction that divides the church because he's head of the church and Lord of the church. It's not good when those things happen. But it's okay because Jesus is Lord. And he will continue to build his church, not even despite the sin of its members, but even through it. Nations may go to war. Leaders may fall or not. Psalm 2 gives us some insight into how God regards those things. He laughs in derision. Why? Because he's placed his son as Lord over the nations. And he says, honour him, respect him, serve him, because he is Lord. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Husbands and wives might argue, your mums and dads. They might even separate, sadly. But our sins have been forgiven. So there can be forgiveness. He's reconciled all things to himself. So there can be, there's not always, but there can always be reconciliation because he is Lord. And so again, don't think for a moment that I'm saying all the evil harmful, sinful things of the world are okay, I'm not. They go against the very fabric of our being, the very fabric of creation. They go against the character and holiness of Christ. And as Lord, he grieves when those things take place. Don't think he's not going to intervene and do something about it. He will. He has. He disciplines his children. And as Lord, he is judge of all the earth. And so no injustice will ever go unpunished. And so it's okay, because he's Lord. Whatever situation you're in, whatever trouble you're facing, whatever internal struggles you might have, those things in and of themselves may not be okay, but Jesus is Lord. And so it is okay. At least on one level. It's okay. Maybe on the one level that really counts. Doesn't minimise everything so we can skid through life not caring about anything. Doesn't mean we should never speak up or take up our responsibilities, that we should never correct or rebuke or discipline. But it does mean that the first place we go to, whatever our circumstance, is to Christ and his Lordship. And it means the last place, the place we find rest, whatever our circumstance, is Christ and his Lordship. It should be a great relief for us to know that Jesus is Lord. But as I said, it also raises the stakes in so many ways. His yoke is easy, he tells us, and his burden is light. But as our Lord, there's also great responsibility and integrity. There's mercy and love and justice expected of us as we walk humbly with him in faith. We'll get to see some of those things in the coming weeks, see how Christ's lordship works out in our homes, our workplaces, in our worship, 
in our suffering, in every aspect of our lives. But this morning, as I said, it's all about Christ, about his supremacy, his preeminence, those two words, depending on your translation. He's Lord over all things. And as Lord, he is our all-sufficient saviour by the blood of his cross. If you've got your Bibles there, open up to Colossians 1, verse 15. The he in verse 15, as Scott told us, refers back to this beloved son in whom we have redemption from the passage from last week. <clears throat> but you might notice that in every verse between verse 15 and verse 20, this Christ hymn, it actually refers to Jesus. And in every verse he's referred to. He, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, verse 16. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Verse 19, for in him, and verse 20, for through him, by the blood of his cross. Can you see just how it's all about Jesus? But just to make it clear what is all about Jesus and what Jesus is Lord over, did you pick up in the reading, and I, just the way Scott read it, I think it came through very clearly, every time Jesus is mentioned, every time he is referred to, there's something else that's repeated. Everything, all things. All things were created by him. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things created through him and for him. He holds all things together. He's the head of the body. He's the beginning and he's the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection trailblazer for all that follow him, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And God is pleased to reconcile all things to himself. So it's all about Jesus and he's Lord of everything. There is nothing outside of his reign. Nothing outside of the scope of his kingdom and his power and authority. And there is nothing and no one above him except his father who was pleased to dwell in him fully and together, Father, Son and the Spirit in covenant love and authority and submission so wonderfully and willingly exercised within the triune Godhead. Exercise this lordship over all things. And I don't think there's ever a time when Christ's lordship is irrelevant or not important. But today, as Callan reminded us with what I wrote for the Corrie News, the world has largely forgotten that Jesus is Lord. Sadly, even in many churches, we've forgotten that. Today, as much as any other, in our present day culture, in the age of the selfie, you can take an image of yourself, whereas we have Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Which image are we looking to for life, salvation, sustaining joy? We live in an age of the unholy trinity where the self reigns supreme. The unholy trinity of me, myself and I. You might have heard that phrase with a few writers. They're worshipped and glorified above all else. We need to hear again, refresh our own hearts and minds that Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, that actually means where to submit to him. That comes with lordship. Paul declares here that Jesus, the Son of God, he's Lord of creation, but he's also Lord of the new creation, firstborn from the dead of the resurrection, the ruler of the resurrection. 
and that changes everything. Affects everything we are and everything we do. Or at least it should. Can you imagine what it would mean, what a difference it would make for this generation living today, young and old, but particularly those who have grown up with Facebook friends and Insta identities? Can you imagine what it would mean if we came to know and believe that we would actually know Jesus as Lord and that things were made in him, by him and through him, but also everything was made for him? That is, it's not made for us primarily. It's made primarily for Christ. That would turn our world upside down, wouldn't it? The world is not our oyster, in which some of us learn the hard way that someone else has stolen our pearl. No, he. It's his oyster. Actually, it's not his oyster. It's his footstool, we're told, the world. That's how he's Lord over all things. The earth is his footstool. Christ is the pearl of great price. And we are therefore made, we ourselves are made for him. For him. To serve him. Not the other way around. He's not some dispensing machine we can pray and say, I want this today, or I need that. Give it to me, please. Because you're Lord. No, he is Lord, and therefore, actually, we are made to serve him. The way we live would look different if we remembered that. The way we worship would be different. The way we look for a job the kind of job we look for. How can I best serve the Lord with the gifts he's given me rather than how can I best lie my own pockets and build my own nest? What we do with our time, our money, our energy, our pleasure would be so different when we remember we've been made for him. I reckon we would stand out against the crowd. And that's what we've been called to do, isn't it? To be holy, to be set apart in the world and not of it. And I think that's exactly why Paul prays, as we heard last week, that these believers, and for us today, would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, because we do stand out, and standing out means you get ostracised. There's pressure, there's oppression. And we need all endurance and patience with joy. And some of that joy, some of the wonder of everything being made by Christ and through him and for him, is that in his mercy and grace, this is just how wonderful he is as our Lord, he actually turns all of that glory that's for him into blessing for us. That's just astounding. That the King of kings and Lord of lords who deserves and is worthy of all praise actually turns all of that into blessings for us. We share in his glory. We share in his inheritance. We too one day will appear with him in glory. And until then, he showers his blessings, his comfort and his love for our encouragement, endurance and joy as we live by faith today. Is that how it is for you? As you serve Christ, you actually realise that all that you give to him, he actually showers back upon us with blessing and more. That's one reason in our very me-centred individualistic culture that the church, us, the gathered body of believers we call the family of God, is so vital. That we remind each other not to be navel-gazers and seeking our own worldly comforts and pleasure and glory, but actually to serve Christ, to keep our eyes looking up, our hearts and our minds looking up, and look to him, to love him and serve him. 
and then to love one another as he's created us to do. I don't know if you've noticed, but whether it's climate change or COVID or mindfulness or metaverse things or interest rates or suicide rates, the world keeps on looking to itself to find all the fixes, to find all the answers. Humanity believes, and it probably started, well, not the Enlightenment, but that definitely gave it a real good acceleration. It probably started way back in the garden. But we think we can be rid of God because we can see all the observable things now and work it out from the inside. We think we can find enough cures and develop enough technology to make it all better so that the world can say it's okay. But if we're ever to find purpose and meaning and peace that we're looking for with our cures and progress and whatever else, as great as our minds may be, and they are, God himself said, didn't he? If I leave these people to themselves, there's no stopping what they'll be able to do. Back in Genesis, Tower of Babel. And he said he's made us all very good. But we need to look out, sorry, we need to look outside of ourselves if we're ever to find those answers, if we're ever to actually find peace and purpose in our life, if we're ever to find the great cures for disease. It's in the promise that one day there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering. Humanity is flat out trying to fix the world but we've forgotten and we are ignoring that we actually are not God. <laughs> that we are not Lord of creation. Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He, he's the ultimate revelation of God. We read later, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, if you want to know the fullness of God the Father, everything about him, where do you look? You look to the Son. In him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. What did Jesus say to Philip? who said, show us the Father, that will be enough. Then we'll believe, then we'll be at peace. And what did Jesus say? Oh, Philip, really? How long have you known me? And yet you still say, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father and you know the Father. He hasn't left anything hidden of himself. He's revealed himself fully in Christ. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn here, just a little word of explanation. Firstborn doesn't mean he was the first one to be born or created in the world. Paul uses the same word in verse 18. He's the firstborn from the dead. And in that area, yes, he was the first to be resurrected from the dead. So there's a sense of being first in order or sequence. But actually this, sent, this word, this term firstborn, has more to do with a sense of status than it does sequence. It's more to do with a sense of power and authority than it does the order, as in first, second, third. If all things were created by him, all things created by him, unlike some who believe a heresy that he was the first one created, that can't be true. If everything was created by him, he himself cannot be a created being. In the Old Testament, Israel is also called God's firstborn son. David is appointed to be his firstborn. He wasn't even the first king of Israel. What does that mean? He wasn't the firstborn in his own family. 
No, he is God's firstborn, meaning he's to be the most exalted, the one God puts in a particular place of power and authority in royalty, in status, in lordship. And so when we read this term firstborn, the main point is not that he's the first in place. He's not the gold medal winner of creation or resurrection. Now, he's the supreme Lord, exalted over all, with the most power and authority of all. He's worthy to inherit all things and have authority over all things. It's his status as firstborn, not his order in sequence that he's firstborn. In his eternal sonship, he's the heir of all things. And as I said before, all of that wonder and glory that's his is ours. In him, everything that is yours, all is yours in Christ. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. All things were created through him and for him. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that exists creationally, which is everything, (laughs) that was not made by or in him. Even the rulers and powers and authorities and dominions, the heavenly ones and maybe the not-so-heavenly ones, as we might like to think of them, even evil powers. Now, that's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? And there is a mystery there, but I think it also should be some great relief to us. We may struggle to comprehend why God and his Son would create such domains and dominions and allow them to have the power they have, but they don't have power over him because he created them. Try as they might, they cannot outrun or overthrow their creator. And in fact, they've been made for him. Even the great hour of darkness on the cross, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, for the redemption of creation, of his people. Even the most severe and evil events of the time, such as the cross, played right into God's hands and fulfilled his purposes so we can be confident that no power or dominion will ever get the upper hand on Christ he is before all things and in him all things hold together I'm sure like me you have days where you feel like your world's falling apart your life's falling apart your marriage, your home, your kids well when you feel like that it's okay It's not okay, but it is because Jesus is Lord and he holds all things together. If he removed his hand just for a moment, the whole creation would crumble and return to darkness and void that was there before creation. Some of us, sadly, think we actually have all this great responsibility on our shoulders, in our homes, in our work, in our ministry, pastors, Surgeons often develop what we call a God complex or a Messiah complex, thinking we have power over life, over souls. I can remember when I was a young kid watching cartoons. You like watching cartoons? You're not allowed to watch cartoons. <laughs> I used to like watching cartoons. And I remember this cartoon of two dogs who were sort of friends, but one really got on the nerves of the other one. And he was trying to get rid of his mate and leave him, but he always found him. Eventually, the, the one who was annoyed and frustrated with his so-called friend took him to Italy, where, look, this tower, leaning tower of Pisa, it's going to fall down. Quick, hold it up. So he leaves his mate there holding up the leaning tower of Pisa. And he says, I'll go get some help. But he never comes back. This poor mate's holding up the leaning tower of Pisa day and night. Don't. 
It's meant to be funny. Some of us live our life thinking we're holding up something like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That we're holding, like Atlas, the world on our shoulders. None of us hold that power. None of us could ever bear that burden. The only burden we should carry is the yoke of Christ, the light burden of turning to him and trusting the Father. We heard that a few weeks ago, like little children. Disciples of Christ, trusting God, taking Christ's yoke as he walks beside us, bearing the brunt of the load, really, and teaching us the way of trusting the Father and in Christ who holds all things together. And sometimes the idea that Jesus is Lord holding all things together means he's far off and distant up there watching all things. No, he's very near to us. Like as near as your head is to your body. Take it an inch away and you no longer live, do you? He's the head of the church. The church which is his body. Not only connected but in communion with us and in charge as Lord. He's our saviour and sustainer. He's the one who provides all things. He's responsible over us. The firstborn from the dead. He's not only Lord of creation, he's ruler of the resurrection. He's Lord of the new creation. That in everything he might be preeminent, supreme, Lord, first place. We heard earlier, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, things in heaven and earth. In Christ, who is Lord, the Father has been at work reconciling all things to himself. He was pleased to do that. Jesus didn't do it in order to please his Father. In a pe- no, the Father was pleased to do that in Christ. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. And in that very short but wonderful and final statement, Paul has the infinite, eternal, supreme and all-sufficient Lord of all creation and of the new creation bleeding for us, for you and I. As Lord and head of the church, Jesus is our redeemer, our all-sufficient saviour by shedding his own blood. And you, verse 21... Paul's been declaring Christ loud and clear, repeating time and time, and now he turns to us. But in fact, it's only us in him, in regards to Christ. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing you who were once far off from him, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, this great Lord of all creation... Everything he does on a cosmic scale he's actually done on a very personal and intimate scale for each of us. Reconciling all things to himself, reconciling you to himself by shedding his blood. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You can hear the pastor in Paul in that sentence. He's just sung this great Christ hymn. He's not just preaching the truth here. He's now urging his readers not to wander, not to dilute the gospel or mix it with anything else they're hearing around them, the trendy mysticism of the day or the heavy hand of the law. 
don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't let your eyes drop from that hope laid up for you in heaven, which is Christ himself. Don't think that Christ is not enough, that you need to add something to him and to what he's done for you. He is everything and he's sufficient and he's supreme. There is no other. There is no more than Christ. Let me finish with a quote from John Calvin, which sums up just how wonderful and central and all-sufficient Christ our Lord really is. I was listening to a, a, um, a, a message from a fellow called Michael Horton. Um, it was a, if you get a chance to listen to it, it was the necessity of justification. He speaks much about Luther, um, but he finishes with this quote, and I looked it up, and it's just wonderful. Um, I won't say any more about that. Have a chance to listen to Michael Horton, Necessity of Justification. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts, and I'd say all of our life, are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it, not any bit of life and salvation from anywhere else but Christ. If we seek salvation... We are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. Jesus means God saves. He will save his people from his sins. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in Christ's anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If we seek purity in his virginal conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects, that he might feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remeasured remission, in the curse in his cross. If we seek satisfaction, we find it in his sacrifice. If mortification of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body and our own sin, we find that in his tomb. If we're looking for newness of life, we find it in his resurrection. In short, since the store of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. It's more than okay. Jesus is Lord. I'm tempted to ask, some pastors leave their application to the very end after working out the verses. I tend to thread it throughout, try to anyway. I'm tempted to ask this morning by way of application, is Christ preeminent, supreme and Lord for you? Is he Lord of your life? Does he take first place? But actually, I don't want to ask that because I think it's actually better to finish simply declaring to you once again, Jesus is Lord for you and to you he is lord of your life now whether you rest and rejoice in that or wrestle with it and resist it or reject it altogether that's really the point of application this morning we rest in christ's lordship of our life our church the world our homes our families and so as paul finishes this section and i'll ask our musicians to come up my prayer musicians you can please do i pray that we indeed would continue in the faith stable and steadfast that we might not shift from the hope of the gospel that we've heard 
I think it was J.I. Packer who said that all good theology should lead to doxology and devotion, that is to praise to God and the practice of godliness. In other words, he says, theology that does not lead to doxology and devotion is nothing but bad theology. I hope this morning's been more than just good theology, but I do hope it's been, I trust it's been nothing less than that. And so the right response is praise to our Lord, to sing praises to him, to have hearts filled with adoration for him and a desire to walk in his ways, a manner worthy pleasing to him.